Welcome back to Arts About. Show about art that's a work of art in itself. Good morning, Sally, and good morning, Mark. Good morning, John and Sally. And a very special happy birthday to you, Mark. I believe it was your birthday during the beginning Uh, of this week. It was the 1st of August. 1st of August, Mm. yes. Well, happy, happy, happy birthday. You're listening to Arts About, which is brought to you by the generosity of the McClellan Sculpture Park and Gallery. And you're here in the RWP studios with us, Mm. with cultural sounding board and artist-in-residence, John Baird. Thermodynamic birthday boy Mark Stewart and me Sally Bailey. So, uh, what have and you? And what got... are you, Sally? I I'm... am. I'm not sure. Do you think yeah. I, I should have a a catched frame? Monitor. Mm. We'll get one. We'll find yeah. one for you. Yes. Well, yeah. For next week, okay? Yes. Can I have one, please? Yes. It'll be something to do with how gorgeous you are. Oh, do you think? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think you're right. Now, uh, what have you got for us this week, John? Melbourne Art Fair, Sally. Oh. Not so good. Mm. Oh, it wasn't so bad. You, you went, reckon? did you? Of course. Yes, of course. yes. Well, we can talk about it, but I reckon there's a lot of stuff going on there that I fills me with despair, frankly. Well, look, John, that's interesting because I, I um, thought after last week's uh, show that I was relentlessly negative uh, and I'm having great problems not being relentlessly negative um, over over what I've just seen in the McClellan Gallery, and uh, well, I'll take on the uh, the mantle of negativity today. Today, if you well, like, I can join you there. It's uh, perhaps it's better than being relentlessly uh, positive, which I find even oh. more tedious. Yeah, like me. No, you. Now, did you notice actually that the Santa Maestrum, Maestrum, whose exhibition of black paintings that's on at McClellan Gallery, was also in the art fair. She had some ceramics. Did she? Mm. Doesn't matter what she's doing, it's all rubbish. <laughs> oh, okie dokie then. Um, I haven't been down there. I want to have a look at the McClellan stuff. And it's a pity I haven't been down and have a We went past the other day, Amanda and I. And yes, we, were we going go, to go I, in. Yes, I go past often and think, should I? But they, look, it's really, I'm, I'm, it's just, I'm going to say it and probably regret it, there's far too many women involved in the art world. Oh. So there you go. Oh, I will my be word. damned if, as you like. Gosh. Mm. Yes. Okie dokie. That well, that has not been the case for millennia. But there no, we that's are. true. Which is mm. why we're in such a dire situation. Okie dokie. <laughs> uh, so, what are you going to be talking to us about this week, Mark? Uh, feminism. Oh. No, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, about uh, whales. I didn't get my uh, yeah. whale oh, story. Yes. Whales okay. and dogs, and um, a few other things. I've got a few things up my sleeve here. Dog like whales. All right. Well, that's wonderful. Also on the program today, we're going to be talking to Bonnie Brown. She's one of a piano duo that also includes Louisa Breen, and they are playing at an event in Bluer House on uh, and Garden on August the 14th, and also on the 21st. I'm going to play you a little bit of what you might expect to hear from them if you decide to go and see them uh, play in in a couple of moments. Um, and we are also going to welcome uh, Matt Guthrie from Bistro Elbow in Sorrento, who has teamed up with Antipodes Gallery to present a series of literary lunches. We've talked about them before and arts about, and in fact last year I got to interview author Jock Sarong about his book on the Java Ridge. And on the 17th of August, author Shireen Morris is the next one. She's an author, a lawyer and an activist, and she's going to be speaking with James Button about her book, Sacred Heart, documenting the time she spent working alongside Noel Pearson. So, as I've mentioned, uh, I've got a track here from the duelling pianist Bonnie Brown and Louisa Breen. This is a Miriam Hyde uh, composition called Takata for Two, and uh, here it is. You're listening to the glorious sounds of pianist duo Bonnie Brown and Louisa Breen, who are playing at Ballura House in the afternoons of the 14th and 21st of August. 
Bonnie Brown and Louisa formed the Brown and Breen duo in 2011 and are one of Australia's most prominent piano duos. And they are going to be playing the work of Australian composer Ross Edwards, as well as the major works of Debussy for two pianos and Rachmaninoff's symphonic dances here on Tuesday afternoons, two Tuesday afternoons this month. Paris-based concert pianist Bonnie Brown is an active soloist, a collaborative musician and a teacher, and she's also the founder and co-artistic director of Concert Sans Frontières concert series, which launched in June in this year in Paris. She's also on the line with me today to tell us a little bit about this tour and the event. Welcome to Arts About, Bonnie Brown. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. How exciting it is to have such a powerful voice in concert piano here on the Mornington Peninsula playing at Ballura. Thank you. It's just a thrill to be here and it's always so wonderful coming home and to be able to celebrate uh, Ross Edwards' 75th birthday like this is such an honour to be... Have, have him so actively included in all our programs. It's, it's just a wonderful time. What brings you to the Mornington Peninsula? Do you have links here? I do, actually. Well, only in so far as I've performed several times already at Ballura. Um, and they've always, I've always had such a wonderful time. The audience has always been so enthusiastic and friendly. And, of course, the, well, when I started performing there, they didn't have the wonderful performance space that they now have there. Before, it was just part of the historical home, and they had Dame Nellie Melba's piano and actually the first time I played there was quite funny because I was called in last minute to replace someone who couldn't perform who knew that I was returning to Australia and at the time I had a program of very modern um, South American piano music that I'd been studying with my mentor in Paris and actually the piano that they had (laughs) was built before the music was written and it didn't have enough keys which I only discovered (laughs) when I got there and tried to play the final octave of a piece of music and hit the wood but uh, we nobody would have noticed Afterwards, and um, ever since they've got the beautiful Stuart and Sons pianos now, and they're really a, an amazing piano duo. One of the rare venues that actually have two beautiful pianos. So it's just um, it's we've come back several times. It's always a pleasure. So what what will you be playing on these two events down here? So we're playing uh, all of the. We tried to include because it's quite an eventful year for classical music. We tried to include as many things by uh, Ross Edwards as we could. Of course, we have a very close personal relationship with Ross. His music is just so so wonderful and so so celebrated all over the world. Um, and it being his birthday year, it also coincided with the fact that he wrote a, a major new work for us, um, dedicated to our duo, which is extremely humbling. Um, and we'll be performing this, actually giving the premiere in uh, in South Australia. But in the second concert, we'll be giving the Melbourne premiere at Ballura on the 21st. And we're also including his other marvellous works, Flight of Sunbirds, and also a solo work from 2016 that Louisa will play. So really celebrating Ross and his contribution so far to to the repertoire Um, and in addition 2018 marks the centenary of Debussy's death so we thought it would be lovely to also incorporate works by Debussy so there's En Blanc et Noir which is the wonderful suite for two pianos and a work that's not heard so often called Linda Raja um, which has some really beautiful at the time very kind of exotic uh, themes it paints a a garden a, a kind of a Middle Eastern garden scene and it's just they're really gorgeous and besides that the other major work on the program is Rachmaninoff's absolute monument the symphonic dances which will be playing they it can be played as a suite but we also think they stand alone quite well the three the three dances in the suite and so across the two concerts we're going to be playing that entire work as well so 
plenty of, of gems in there. Mm, that's quite a program. It now, is. I've read about you that you're great champions of Australian composers. Mm. Is there a definable difference that you can describe to us about Australian music, or it, 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 is it something that you could listen to and recognise as different? Um, it's a difficult question for me to answer being Australian and being, being mm. so involved with it, because I think that I would obviously recognise instantly it as Australian, but uh, only because I'm so familiar with it. But mm -hmm. I think if I try to have a, if I try to put myself sort of in an outsider perspective, I think the wonderful thing that you get in Australian music across the board, irrespective of the style that the composer has written in, are these wonderful, very expansive musical landscapes that I think actually really are a reflection of the Australian landscape, just those wide kind of almost infinite expanses. And then all of the colours that come along with the Australian landscape do find their way, I think, beautifully into the music. And sometimes it's, I suppose, more intuitive. And in other ways, there really are. I mean, you know, Ross has definitely used bird calls, for instance, a lot in his music. One of the, one of the works, the first work he wrote for our duo is actually called Bird Morning. And you can hear very clearly all the different kinds of almost in a messian style, you know, the different kinds of um, the bird calls and things. But one thing I can absolutely say is when I've played Australian music abroad and we've been very fortunate to, to play in all, all sorts of different countries across the world, it's always so well received and often sort of very, you know, amateur very, I say amateur musicians, but, you know, people of a, of, of a high level of culture will come up and, and ask, oh, what was this piece and who is this composer? And, and they're always very interested. It's always, it always goes down terrifically. So it's, it's wonderful also to, to be able to play it here, to uh, play there. Bonnie. Hello, Bonnie. Um, my name's Mark Shute. I'm with Sally in the, in the studio. Do, is, uh, Ross Edwards, would you consider him to be one of the more well-known Australian composers? So more than, definitely. than, than um... and I mean Ross is terribly modest, but his works really are, you know, uh, premiered uh, all over the world, New York, or right. you know, he's he he for me he definitely is, and he's also he just has such an inc an incredible and individual musical voice, which I personally, I mean, I'm not a composer, but I think to myself, how can you find your own voice when so much, so much has already voice. happened in, in Western art music? Yes, I, I know his music a little, and I find it very, very interesting. It's, it's Fantastic. It's, yeah, it's lovely. But Fantastic. did he ever make any atonal music? Um, I have, not that I have played personally or come mm. across. I mean, there are sort of hints of it, but no, it's... Mm, there, there's always a, some of the rhythms are very jerky, and there's always things that harmonically that take you by surprise. Right. I'd have to actually ask him. I'm not. I'm, I don't. I don't uh, know. Okay. Maybe in his and student you, days. But. And you mentioned the Mession. Is he? Has he been influenced by Mession? Or? Um, I think I would. I think being so. Um, so incredibly cultivated and being so unbelievably knowledgeable about music, I, I'm certain that he would have a great, yes. uh, you know, knowledge of all of his music. Whether and I don't know if he cites him directly as, as an influence, but they're definitely they both have that very much. Ross has that beautiful connection with nature, mm. um, which of course runs so much through the, one of the two major themes of Messiaen's music, which is of course you know, his faith as well. Nature, yes, so. he was mm. very, very, very strong Catholic. Mm. Now, now, Bonnie, I've never seen two pianos in concert together. Can you t uh, tell me a little bit about this genre? Well, it's quite spectacular. 
I'm sure. But they're not um, side by side as in, in the photo, are they? They're, they're face to face, are they not? Well, that's because it's quite difficult to find space. Okay. Two people <laughs> yeah, on two exactly. pianos at either ends, and we've tried for our publicity photos every possible configuration, and that one actually worked out the best to get the keyboards and the faces. Okay. But look, it depends on the duo, and it depends on the piece. Um, as a general rule, we play curve in curve, um, which means that you have the two key, kind of like a piano equivalent of a push me, pull me, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. with the two heads. And so, of course, one of the keyboards has to have the lid taken off because the lid would be facing totally the wrong way. Um, so the back keyboard lid, the back piano lid, sort of acts acoustically for both. Um, and we don't, I mean, when we're playing duet, it's very different, obviously, because we're right next to one another. But as a general rule, there's just a lot of, there's not a lot of looking at one another's hands or anything. There's a lot of it's done in, in rehearsal and with gest- mm. gestures and breathing and, and those kinds of things. Um, but uh, it is it is very fun and there's something especially rewarding about doing a playing in a duo with someone who understands really intimately what you are going through, not only as a musician but also as a craftsman because you can have very interesting discussions about which fingering, well, interesting to us, to no one else, but mm. to us, you know, which fingering would you do or sorting out technical problems and, yeah. It's, well, visually uh, it's, it's lovely to see two, two people playing the piano because the timing obviously has to be perfect mm. yeah. and the hand movements are just so beautiful when you see two pianos playing together. Yes, I, I imagine there there is some real... Um, uh, a visual choreography to yes, it. Yes, exactly. But mm. uh, can you tell me the um, Lindjaro of Debussy? I, mm-hmm. I've never heard. I know Debussy quite well. I've never heard of this music. Is it? Yes. Is it, well, that's what, it, what, what I sort of said in a lot of the program notes. Is that it's a very, um, it's a very rarely. It's an Arabic influenced piece. piece of music and look, it's very short, and so I think that. Um, I think that maybe because it's short and it's not, I mean, it's absolute, for me, it's incredibly evocative and very, very, very beautiful. Mm. Um, but it's not particularly, it's sort of more of a rest piece in the program. It only goes for about five minutes and it's okay. very, it's highly evocative, but not especially brilliant, I suppose. So that might be why um, it's, it's, it's less excellent. played compared to the Emblain Mar mm. or, you know, the transcription of Pinson or any of these things. Et vous parlez bien um, and it has that mm. habanera rhythm going through it the entire the entire way so it's got that same feeling like une soirée dans Grenade or even mm. some of the works of Ravel that also have that same rhythm that was very in fashion at the time yes. so yeah which was a, in fact a um, response to Wagner's overpowering influence on everybody else <laughs> no n'est-ce pas yes <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, but it's it's just it's a gorgeous work, and the ca- just the the colours that he. It's one of those funny works because it's the, the colours that he manages to achieve um, in the harmonies are just so. They just transport you. They're so beautiful. But at the same time, I think it's one of those pieces that if you play it perfectly as it's written and in time, it sounds actually like you're taking lots of liberty. But it's just the genius of Debussy because mm. he's managed to write all of that into the score, and so. Yeah, he was a genius, yeah. amazing man. Mm. 
Well, if this has gotten your uh, juices going, I suggest that perhaps you might want to go to the Ballura House website to have a look at tickets. Bonnie Brown and Louisa Breen are going to be playing at Ballura House on the 14th and the 21st of August. It's a it's an afternoon event. It's at 1.30 in the afternoon. Go to their website. Now, we're going to go out with a track. I think that you're going to be performing at Ballura. We are. Uh, and this is one of Ross Edwards' um, a part one, I think, of Flight of the Sunbirds. Is that correct? Yep. The first move, the first of nine little little duets. Wonderful! Thank you so much for talking to us today. Good My luck with pleasure. that. We're really looking forward to coming along. I think uh, both Mark and I are going to come and oh, see terrific. you perform. Thank you so much for having me. It's just been wonderful. It's a great pleasure. Thanks again. Uh, bye bye, Bonnie Brown. Bye. You're listening to Arts About on RPPFM, and we've got Matt Guthrie from Bistro Elba in here with us today to get a little inside knowledge of the next literary lunch that they're holding here on the 17th. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to Arts About. Thanks, Sally. Thanks so much for coming in. Okay. Now, um, you've formed a wonderful alliance with Antipodes Gallery uh, and, to, and Bookshop and have created a wonderful scene down there with the intersect of ri- good writing and good food. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, tell us how you got this started. Um, there is a bit of a history of authors' lunches on the peninsula. They've been doing them at Montalto for a very long time with the Wheeler Centre. Mm-hmm. And Jane from Antipodes has her fingers in those pies as well. And we had a conversation with her about her, um, trying to create something of a bit of a cultural hub in Sorrento and trying to action some things. And we decided that we would give it a go and see how we went. And we've been doing it for about a year now, yep. once a month, um, and it's been very successful. We've had some really interesting authors and um, hopefully delicious food. We're in charge of the food. Yep. She's in charge of the authors. So, Nikki Fisher, yes, of course. We've had Nikki yep. in here on, on occasions. And, and last year I talked with uh, Jock Sarong oh, yeah. in that series. So I, I, I hadn't realised it's absolutely, it's every week. Is it the first? No, no, it's every month. Every once, month, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we we do change it around because um, we it depends upon the quality what authors we can get and when they're available because yep. once they release a book they become very busy people for about three months from what we yes, can tell of course. and then they uh, go off and start writing again. Yes, Jock Sarong is going to do launch another book I think in, at the end of. November, we're yes. going to plan. He talked about it on that day, which sounded yeah. and it sounded like an extraordinary departure for him too, because I think it was an historical story. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. That's my understanding, but I haven't read it. Okay, so this this next one on Friday the 17th is with author, lawyer and activist Shireen Morris and she's going to be talking about her book Sacred Heart. Yep. Have you read it yet? I am, I would say, three quarters of the way through. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a documentary book and it's about her time working with Noel Pearson, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And the sort of, it sort of uh, comes from where she's come from. She's a um, Fijian Indian mm-hmm. uh, migrant. Her fam- her Both her parents are doctors that studied at Melbourne University and then subsequently migrated to Australia. And it's just about her being, her perception as an outsider in the country about the sort of cultural sort of undertones that the um, reconciliation process brings up, I think. Mm. Um, And her work with Noel Pearson and other political heavyweights, really, she's been... He's um, constitutional advisor for about 10 years, so she's really 
got quite an interesting story to tell, I think. Yeah. Is it an easy read? Uh, it's not the... It's lighter than you would imagine. Yeah, because it's a pretty heavy subject yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Mm. She doesn't go... In, she doesn't go into too much technical detail about the constitution and they're trying and why what they're trying to do, but more about the sort of overall broadest brushstrokes of why it's important to do the changes um, in her opinion and the barriers that um, people have and against changing something that is fundament that the laws are fundamentally based on in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite it's quite an interesting. Uh, approach to it because she's not trying to she has a a good understanding of why people have issues with it but uh, a really strong belief that there needs to be some change made so that culturally Australia can move forward into a better sort of future I think for everyone Mm. and and you also quite often have some very interesting people who are actually doing the interview and I'm not talking about myself of course but I have (laughs) I have seen some you know they're they're celebrities too in in their way and and this time you have um, it's James Button and he was a speechwriter I think for a political speechwriter but also a journalist is that right that could be correct I'm You've actually got me right on the hop there because I didn't know the answer to that as soon as oh. you started talking to me about it. I generally know the people that we have. Yep. Um, but in this instance, I had had no idea because when I'd last spoken to someone about it, there was no conversation. You didn't have it. Yep. Okay, well, well, luckily enough, I actually printed it out because I, I, when I read his name, I thought I recognised it, but I didn't know who he was. So James was a journalist at the age of 20 years, uh, including three years as a European correspondent and was deputy editor, opinion editor and senior writer. And he's won a couple of Walkleys for his feature writing. And he was also a speechwriter for uh, Kevin Rudd and for the Secretary of Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Terry Moran. So there we are. So he's a pretty... He, he will have a very interesting take, my guess, and they will have a lot to talk about. And I think and I think that's the most important thing, that you need to have a good interviewer to bring out an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, and we try to have it... Structure it so that it's a... It is just a... Everyone has something to... A lovely lunch including the author and the interviewer, and then they just have a, a nice long conversation about whatever the mm-hmm. the book has brought up. And I because they're sitting at the table beforehand, I think that the conversation is a lot more natural and a lot more in-depth than it would be if it was just something that happened just instantaneously. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, so what is for lunch? Uh, are you in charge of that? Because are yeah, you, yeah, because I'm I think you're a chef, as, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we at Bistro Alba have a very a menu that evolves a lot. So, what is happening next week? We won't know until next week. Essentially, um, it's always we're always trying to do something that's. Um, that we haven't done mm-hmm. as part of the a la carte. So we always make a special dip lunch revolving around whatever's going on. Uh, I try to theme it a little bit around the book, t- but I'm not going to attempt to do any sort of... Native Indigenous experience. food? No. no. I do have some beautiful finger limes that someone okay. gave to me the other day. <laughs> what about a kangaroo? Some push tomatoes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't have any ideas about that at this stage. Yeah. A bit of kangaroo maybe. Yeah, yeah or there's some... Um, 
some wallaby from Kangaroo Island that's meant to be really amazing that somebody was trying to sell me the other day. So I had I some know. garfish in your restaurant recently, which was fabulous, I have to say. Yeah, well, they're beautifully structured as well, aren't I they? I love a yeah. garfish, yeah. Yeah, yes. they're, they're such nice things on the plate. And you must have uh, cooked them curled up in a can or something because they came out in these beautiful shapes on the yeah, plate. Yeah, yeah, that's just... Uh, attaching them to themselves and then right. grilling them. But they are a beautiful fish, mm. yeah. I used to get them down at Rosebud Pier in the middle of the night with mm. bread soaked in the oil out of a can of tuna. Yes. Yeah, and they yes, loved it and I gorgeous. loved them. Yeah, they're very delicious. <laughs> so how do people book? What do they do? What's uh, the best way for so them to? We, you, we're in the... You can just call the restaurant. Bring up the restaurant, yep. yes. Um, you can book online. We have an online booking facility. Or you can, if you are in the bookshop, you can speak to Jane and the girls there and they can organise it as well. We try to make it as easy as possible. Yeah, good. Well, what I will also do is put a link on our Facebook page so to to your booking, yep. uh, online booking service, and, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to make it a little yep. bit easier for our listeners as well. It sounds great. I think I want to come along and, and listen. Um, thank you very much for coming My in pleasure. and talking to us today, thank Matt you. Guthrie. And uh, congratulations on this wonderful series. I, we, we'll try and keep in touch and, and actually let our yeah, listeners we'll know, let as you know as they're as, coming up. Yeah, as they book it. That, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Now, you're listening to Arts About on RPFM. We've been talking to Matt Guthrie about the Literary Lunch on at Bistro Elbus in Sorrento on the 17th of August in partnership with Antipodes Bookshop. And after a few messages from our sponsors, we're going to be back with John on. But before we go, um, I've got a track here that might change the way you remember William Shatner uh, or Captain Kirk, as many would probably know him. This is him singing Common People. I had never heard of it, but I think it's pretty special. Thank you. I learned something today, Mark. What was that, John? Pianos had less key, keys on them in the past than they do now. Yeah, yes, I didn't that's know true. that. Well, they haven't been around for all that long, you know. So what happened? Did someone was playing the piano one day and they just thought, there's not enough keys on here, I want more? Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they extended them. But the, the music she was playing, she probably could have improvised and nobody would have known, noticed the difference, I'm sure. But it, would, it was a funny story. Well, mm. yeah, but I can't, how many less keys were there? She must have been um, an octave look, or something. If you have a look, some pianos can have you know, four, four or five chords, you know, right. and some go to six or seven. I can't remember exactly. I'm not a big expert on that, but they, they do you know, a, a grand piano does have more keys than one of the... You know, well, the, it's a bit of information that I've stored away. Yes. And I'm sure I'm going to use it one day. Tick. Over lunch. <laughs> <laughs> or on one of your John Ons. I'll tell you something. Which of course we're in the middle of now. Yes. In the past when people were interested in being artists, they were kind of interested in uh, having, perhaps having something to say or something to add to the conversation that art was having amongst itself. And uh, if they went and uh, got educated in art, it would be in drafting and uh, applying paint, mixing paint, those kinds of technical things. And the art bit would be pretty well left up to them. Uh, and then... When I, by the time I was at art school, art schools were talking about uh, a little bit more than that. They were talking about uh, what art is and the conversation was about what art might be or what it can be or what, and never what it can't be, frankly, but, you know, what it can be. And uh, these days I think art schools put out people who have been educated mostly in 
how to make your way in the art world, how to, uh, how to achieve a presence in the art world and a presence in front of an audience. And the art has kind of left the scene, frankly. And I went to the Melbourne Art Fair recently and that kind of stuff was all over the place. And I think it's insincere and uh, it's about people wanting to be an artist without having any art about them. And do you think it's uh, uh, artists addressing the current zeitgeist and that, you know that that being the theme that that being there is no about? theme. It's about uh, it's either just utter decoration, yep, or it's some mad attempt to um, bewilder people into thinking that it's art. Right. You know, but I didn't at the art fair. I didn't see a lot of stuff that I thought, oh yeah, that's nailed it. That's mm. sort of nailed the issue. And I'm not suggesting that people like me do. Mm. You know, I'm in a different sort of world to that stuff. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't get it. And I, I understood, I understood while I was walking around in there how people would walk into a thing like that, and. Though if they didn't know anything about art, if they had no contact with the art world at all, they would be looking around thinking, what the hell is this about? What is this for? Well, I think that's been the case for thousands of years. Um, but the problem these days is that people are taught about marketing, which yes. is basically what you're saying, because yeah. they, what they realise is that there are so many artists coming out of art schools and ending up nowhere because they didn't know how to enter into the marketplace. Well, I don't think the art school cares whether they end up in well, the marketplace or not. I they, think there's great pressure on in, the art schools actually these days to address they, that. But they Goldsmiths do. and Company, they're all talking about marketing and giving them a business yeah. plan, which is um, not necessarily a bad thing, but it is very true what you're saying. The big problem, I think, with a lot of these artists is and how they're taught is they're not given an historical perspective they're taught what is, has immediately become before them and they're not not what's become sort of before them from a long time ago and I think this has you can see that in a lot of this art but I was at the show at Melbourne Art mm-hmm. Fair as well did you see the guy in the front Alan Jones who was doing the a uh, little bit like ha, um, Ark, what's his name uh, Ark, uh, yes um, Howard Arkey Howard Arkey they were they, they were cutouts they Cut were out, jigsaws yes on, wood. Uh, and yes. of houses and trees yes. and uh, with resin and if you had a close look at them they were quite simply done but very effective I thought they were quite I quite people. like those yeah. too. Um, and there was Lucy Couton, is it her name? Couton, she does all f- horses, uh, not horses, flowers, and it's her garden mm-hmm. up in, near Canberra. She lives up in Yeah, she lives, they weren't bad. They were they quite were, nice. They yeah. were, and she was there, and yeah. she was lovely, they, and yeah. they were all sold, right. all, all of them sold. But it's true, that wh- what I do remember is there was so much sort of, ju- um, sort of geometric stuff and a lot of uh, sculpture, which was just sort of bits and bobs and no real form to them. <laughs> Flat bits of plastic with rainbow colours on them. That's, yeah. I did quite like the underpants that had all sorts of Karen. Yes, the, she's Aboriginal, yes. and, yes. The, and the and horse. There was a flag with a. Yes, yes. they were they, they were, were rather. They were quite good. I yeah. Mm. yeah, I saw a work of Polly uh, Polly. Um, uh, Polly Borland mm. there in the hall, right up the other end in the Murray White Gallery, and. Uh, it moved me more than anything else I saw there. Mm. Um, How about William Mora? Uh, Mor- um, oh, the Mercamoras. Mercamora, no, I think. You mean those big panels of drawings? Drawings. Who the same guy? Yeah, isn't it? yeah. They're, and they're no, but they they were good drawings, and I loved those actually. Um, mm. And they're all made on little Bit, pieces pages of paper put together and then stuck together later on. Yes. You know, so he doesn't know what it's going to look like till he's applied it all. Oh, apparently, yeah. and, all right. 
Mm. Well, uh, as I said to you just before we went on air, we got there way too late and uh, we only saw half of it. Um, I only saw the uh, the part that was the in the tent outside right. Acker and uh, next to the vault. And I have to admit that both Will and I left there extremely underwhelmed. Mm. Yeah, I think it was a little underwhelming. Well, and I was there first thing in the morning with a collector and she managed to buy three pieces while did we were there. Did you? What did she buy? She bought the uh, painting of a, in a uh, Thomas Koenig gallery. The, uh, there was a striped painting on the outside and inside there was a Chinese girl's painting about two metres by one metre fifty. Very sort of Chinese in its design but abstract, a little bit like uh, Helen Frankenthaler. Beautiful okay. colours, mm-hmm. and um, she bought those. It was lovely to be with someone who was actually buying. And, well, that was, and that's the other issue about it, an art fair, you know, where all the galleries get themselves into the one building mm. and um, and show off their stuff, and it's a bit of a kind of a trade fair, I suppose, and they're looking at what each other are doing, and they are also got um, clients coming through, one assumes, mm. but I didn't have that feeling. I mean, there weren't a lot of people there. It well, was very no, but if you, I was there with, when it was just collectors. It wasn't open to the public, right. and it was it was a very sort of um, amicable oh, feeling. They give you a glass of champagne? They gave me whatever I wanted, John, <laughs> and I, I, I didn't want anything, but they, we, were, we were walking through and very relaxed. There weren't too many people, and you could actually see things and really spend some time looking at them. So it, was, it, it really depends on... Very I guess, different experiences, yeah. clearly. We yeah, left yeah. there, Amanda and I, little, as, uh, as Sally has said, underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And we went up to the Windsor Hotel, which also had an art fair. Yes. I was going to go there, then I was advised not to. Why? Because the, the collector I was with said that she'd been there and that she was underwhelmed at the Hotel Windsor. <laughs> so here well, we go. what I was uh, not underwhelmed about was the way that they've set up that particular fair uh, in hotel rooms. Yes. And... Uh, it would seem that they can't, in fact, remove anything from the hotel room in order to put their gallery in there. So the beds were there, all the furniture's there. Yes. They haven't touched any of the furniture. Whatever it is that they've got on show is somehow connected to all of that or made use of it or not or ignored it. But uh, there were hotel rooms with art in them. And I loved it. I thought it was absolutely but fabulous. When you were in Paris, didn't, you, didn't I take you to the uh, there were exhibitions in hotel, hotels at the time? This was when we were there twenty years ago. No. So they were they were doing it then, and it was also quite effective. But apparently, these galleries were more of the more, the more contemporaries. Well, it galleries. made sense to me because I thought, well, one of those booths in an art fair is going to be very expensive. Twenty five thousand. Right. A room at the Hotel Windsor is not going to cost no. anything like that. No. They, they pay a premium, no doubt, to the organisers. Mm. I spoke to a lot of the gallery. Um, owners who were in there and they were all staying at, in there. <laughs> <laughs> they were sleeping in the beds. Oh, you know? were they? Yeah. <laughs> so well, they had a couple of, of nights at the Hotel Windsor with their art and other people coming in and having a look at it. Mm. And the whole thing felt a lot more kind of, a, a lot more sensible, a lot more friendly uh, and a lot more sincere, frankly. Mm. Well, as we just discussed, it depends on how you're, how you're feeling you're right. at the time. And I, I had a lovely experience speaking with different gallery people and mm. it was um, I even spoke with Anna Swartz, Schwartz oh, yeah. who, your old mate my old mate who wasn't very friendly right. of course but that's that's her way mm. uh, I think she's a bit concerned about what she was not selling but right. the, um, the the Aboriginal woman the Kate who made the uh, the underpants what, what, yes, the I ca- yes they were they were they terrific were quite weren't brilliant, they yeah. yeah 
Uh, now, moving on to you, Mark, okay. what have you got for us this well, week? Well, look, I want to finish what I started me. last week, which yes. was the Wales. Wales. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I was wrong. Oh. Which is, um, <laughs> Kel O'Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but apparently it's good to be wrong. It is oh, good yeah. to be wrong. It's good for your yeah. brain because then it challenges you, you to be right. And so yeah. I was, uh, have always been under the impression that... Well, thank um, goodness it's good to be wrong. It is. And I, that's why I thought, feel more positive mm. about it. That um, I saw a PBS documentary in France a few years ago, and it was very convincing with a you know, deep voice narrator and excellent graphics and lots of blue water, where they were saying that dog, uh, whales were descended from dogs. Or dog-like creatures. Well, this is it. And you know, as I was saying last week, if you look at a Labrador and how it loves to swim and catching fish, and mm. they went on from there, but apparently not. It was actually that they looked like dogs. Right. And so these dogs were called, well, these what looked like dogs were called Pakisetas because they came from Pakistan. What? Yeah. And the, the um, Pakisetas... It wasn't called Pakistan at the time, though, surely. This was a few hundred million years ago, so mm. no. Um, but the, the dog-like creature was called a Pakisetas. Mm. Pakisetas. It didn't have flippers, eat grill or live in the seas. Packy spent its time on land and was fond of a good wallow in the river deltas of Iocene, Pakistan. Right. The so Iocene, let's get something clear. The, uh, Is this thing breathing through the top of its head? or through <laughs> it? Well, not yet, John. <laughs> the, its nose is still at, at the front of its head. It looked a little bit like an anteater, actually. Right. But this, the Iocene area was 56 to 33.9 million years ago, which means it was after the grand extinction of the, uh, where the meteor hit the Earth mm. and all the dinosaurs died. Okay? So it survived that. Its um, Pakistan descendants were very fond of the life aquatic no gravity, great sonic possibilities, and a big silence. And they began to develop, to began to develop uh, features familiar in the whales of today. Some species of modern whale have vestigial reminders of their landlubber past, such as bony remnants of hind-like limbs beneath yeah. layers of, of muscle and blubber. So this is what they rely on, isn't it? They rely on some kind of skeletal uh, historical sense you know, that well, they're looking into it, but what they're saying is that, in fact, the whale has more in common with the hippos, cows and deer than it does with any dog-like creature. Right. So a, a cow and a whale, I've never made that connection. No. Interesting. Although they are, according to the Japanese, the cows of the sea. Ah, right, of course. Yeah. Okay. So at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 250,000 blue whales roaming the seas. Two hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. There are now. Do you know? Have you ever been to um, uh, what's the name of the bay in Tasmania, Southern Tasmania? Not uh, uh, Island. There. Yeah. The uh, Discovery Channel. Bay. Uh, uh, no, the other one down Rue um, Rescue Bay. I think uh, it's in French. Apparently, there were so many whales there that you could walk across their backs. Good heavens! And that when the whalers came down, there was just a sea of blue, of green, uh, red. Blood. Blood. Oh, so we managed okay. to get rid of quite a few of those 250,000 blue whales. Now there's only about ten to 25,000. They were almost extinct, but they're coming back. Now, mm. did you know that they, um, their sound, their, their voices, are so bass that they cover 
vast, vast distances and that pods travel together and they may be, members of the pod may be 150 miles apart and yet they're still communicating. Even more. The NASA, uh, not NASA, the, the US Navy after the Second World War when they had nuclear submarines or uh, soon after, discovered that they were making sonic tunnels of 3,000 miles and they could communicate through those sonic tunnels. Good uh, grief. 3,000 miles. That's Straight. almost as good as a mobile phone system. Yep. They were pretty cool. Your Labrador thing, you know, Labradors aren't, didn't turn into whales. Mm. But uh, my theory is that Labrador, if you ever look at any Labrador, they're a very sentient object, very sentient, sentient animal. And I think that seven good years as a Buddhist and you come back as a Labrador. Oh, do you think so? <laughs> golden or... A oh, golden retriever, yeah. <laughs> That's it. I wanted to speak about the Ionian enchantment. Next Hark, week. It's time for the news. I wonder if an Ionian era conversation can wait another week. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bonnie Brown and Louisa Breen, uh, the piano duo, are playing at Bluer House, uh, and that is on Tuesday the 14th and Tuesday the 21st of I'm August at 1.30. Uh, if you go to the Bluer House website, you can find a link to that and to get tickets, and also I will put a link on our Facebook page.